in First Peter tonight. So if you want to make your way over there to the letter of First Peter, um, in my Bible it's on page eleven thirty six. If that helps, um, as you're trying to make your way there um, to First uh, Peter, so you obviously know you're, we're going to be towards the back. There are how many books in the New Testament? How many? 26. Alright, so there's 26 books in the New Testament and this is book 21. So what I, what that meant to say is we're getting close. So we've been, we started off in Genesis and uh, we've been trying to do uh, one book every single Wednesday night and do a survey. Um, never trying to be completely exhaustive but just looking at a survey and overview of the Bible. So we started in, in Genesis uh, probably five years ago and uh, now we're making our way down here in First uh, Peter book 21, so we don't have that many left to go, but we're going to be in the letter of 1 Peter. Now, similar to what we had looked at last week in the book of James, you know, James gives us a lot of advice, it gives us a lot of counsel, and it gives us a lot of instruction and in how it is that we overcome some of the challenges that we face in our Christian life. And some of the things that we struggle with, some of the temptations, or maybe even our weak points, James speaks to and says, okay, this is how you remain faithful. This is how you live for Jesus in light of the circumstances you find yourself in life. Well, as we get to 1 Peter, and even in the 2 Peter, hopefully next Wednesday, Peter is going to move from the idea of James saying, okay, this is how you overcome temptation and challenges. Peter's going to come in and give us a roadmap. He's going to come and give us turn-by-turn directions, if you will. Um, once upon a time, you know, back when uh, uh, the Gazette, the Rand McNally Atlas was uh, kind of fading, you had MapQuest and you had Yahoo and you had some other ones where you get on the internet and you could uh, click in there and say, I want to go to this place and it would give you turn by turn and you would print off those directions if you were like me and you have a uh, directionally challenged navigator then uh, you would turn off, you would print out these uh, turn by turn directions and that way you always knew that I go 3.5 miles and I turn on this road or whatever. You know, nowadays we just have our phone and it's just a matter of blah, blah, blah. And then you just follow the blue line or you follow what the voice tells you to do. I mean, now it's kind of cheating. But when you think about this Christian life, there's a lot of things that doesn't just come with a how-to manual. There's lots of things that come that you're like, well, I'm not sure whether I could do A or should do B. I'm not sure exactly what I should do from day to day. And so what Peter is doing is Peter's going to come in and give us a bit of a how-to manual. This is how you go from new Christian to mature Christian. This is how you go to starting the Christian life on this day and on this month. And this is how you remain faithful and persevere all the way to the end. So First Peter is really just telling us this is the directions for how do you live your life. There's times that we will find ourselves saying, I'm not sure what I should do. I'm not sure which way I should go. I'm not sure which situation I should pursue. I'm not sure how I should respond. I'm not sure uh, whatever the decision is. And sometimes we find ourselves going, well, I don't know. I don't know. Scripture is sufficient. And I may not say it explicitly when you're in the looking at the sock door, whether it says black socks or blue socks, but there's a lot of things in life that Scripture tells us this is how we are 
to live. And there are so many, so many people that confess to be Christians today that are living lives and they don't even realize that God has told them how to live that life. So what they do is they go off and they listen to whatever the popular speaker is, whoever the popular person is on television, or whatever feels right to them, or whatever their neighbors do on the street, and they're not listening, they're paying attention that God has actually told them this is what you're to do. So that's what Peter's about. Now who wrote First Peter? Peter. Peter. That's right. Peter. Now who was Peter? Disciple of Jesus. Disciple of Jesus. He was the disciple of Jesus. In fact, one, uh, one commentary calls him the apostle of hope. Now, if you know from going through Acts or even just reading through the Gospels, I mean, Peter was one of the more prominent um, of the, the disciples, one of the more prominent of the apostles. And it was also Peter that preached the first message there at Pentecost, right? He's also the one that preached the message as soon as the lame beggar was healed, right? So the, pretty much the first two sermons recorded in the book of Acts of the Apostles, Peter preached, right? So he saw a lot of people come to faith. It was Peter that went to Cornelius' house and saw the Gentiles turn to faith and the Holy Spirit come down upon them. And so Peter's been very influential. Well, now Peter is writing. Most people think, um, most people think probably in the mid to late 60s AD. Um, the, the outline I have here says 64 AD, but somewhere between 63 to 68 AD. They think he's probably in Rome and he's probably up there awaiting um, a trial, awaiting some type of a hearing before Nero the emperor because of the Christian persecution that was breaking out. So he's there most likely in Rome, riding around 63 to 68 AD. And he's writing to who? Who's the audience that Peter is writing to? The what? The Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians? Okay. My Bible says five provinces of the Asia Minor. Okay. So it tells you in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and this would be verse 1, he says those to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he lists off what would be considered to be Roman territories or Roman um, communities, or you might think of it in our terminology today, different counties within the Roman Empire. So he says Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now, does anybody have any idea where those Jewish regions are at today, like geographically. Thank you. Iran. Turkey. Turkey. So there are, if you look at a map of modern day Turkey and then you overlay it with a biblical map, these are the regions of what is now modern day Turkey. Now, why I think this is fascinating is because when Paul is on his missionary journeys, let me see if I can do this backwards. So when Paul's on his missionary journeys and he comes up out of Antioch and he's headed up and he's right there on what we consider the southern part of modern day Iraq. Paul, if you remember, wanted to turn back and make a big swath up through Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He wanted to make a big swath and then come back down to Antioch. But the Holy Spirit said no. And that's where they had the Macedonian call. And they saw the guy say, come over here. And that's when Paul, instead of coming back around, He then went over into what is modern day Greece and went down through Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth and all those. You tracking? Does that sound familiar? Okay. So Paul wanted to reach this area, but we don't have anything recorded in Scripture where Paul ever reached that area. And yet, when Peter is writing, he is writing to that same area. He is writing to Jewish Christians. Other people say there was also a lot of Gentiles, Christians that were in the bunch. And they were 
all living under the Roman rule, and they were all living in those provinces, what is modern-day Turkey. But there was another thing that was going on, and that was Nero. Now, Nero had a hobby, and his hobby was to persecute Christians. So I've told you before that he would take them and he would dip them in tar and then he would crucify them and then he would set them on fire and the illumination of them burning to death and burning up on that crucifixion cross would illuminate his gardens at night. He also had another hobby where he would take Christians that would not renounce their faith and say that Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus is Lord. He would take them and throw them into the den of lions just to watch them be chewed up and eaten just to say, ha, it was almost like a sport for him. Cruel man, wicked man, despicable man. Well, all of these Christians, Jewish and Gentile Christians living in all these areas, they're falling under persecution. And when they're falling under persecution, they're going to the Roman authorities and saying, hey, we are being persecuted by these other people. But the Roman authorities don't care because they say, well, you're not on, you're not devoted to Caesar. So we are not going to have any concern about your plot in life. So not only did they not have the support from the government, but they didn't have the support from their neighbor. And so they are facing persecution all around. And so it gets to the point that they're saying, hey, Peter, are we missing something? Hey, Peter, are we misunderstanding what we're supposed to be doing? Hey, Peter, how do we live in light of all of this problems, struggles, strife, opposition, everybody being against us? So that's what Peter is going to write about. He's going to tell them not, oh, well, it's going to get better tomorrow. He doesn't write and tell them, oh, it's not your fault. He doesn't write and tell them, rise up and revolt. He doesn't write and tell them, move away. He doesn't write and tell them that it was all a mistake and this whole Christianity thing is fraudulent. He doesn't write and tell them to give up hope or give up faith. Rather, he writes and tells them that in light of, despite of your circumstances, this is how you are to live. So, we are going to, how many chapters are in 1 Peter? Five? Five? Okay, so we're going to look at uh, what, I've, what I've kind of entitled here, for the sake of time, is some directions for life. We're going to look at directions, um, just kind of an uh, overview there in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, he's going to talk about the individual calling, what it means to be faithful in our you know, individual life. Then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about the, the individual, or the, the calling, the Christian life and witness of the home. And then in chapter 4, he's going to talk about it within the body of believers, and then he's going to talk about it in chapter 5, within in the life of the church. So, chapter 1, verse 3. He starts, off by the, he starts this letter off by reminding them who they are. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, our, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is not ignorant of the problems. He is not ignorant of their difficulties. He is not ignorant of their struggles or their strifes. But rather, he does not want to say, oh, poor pitiful you. Oh, you don't deserve this. Oh, they're being so mean. But he starts off by reminding them, remember who you are in Christ. What does it say in John 15? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. They hated me. They're going to hate you because you're not of the world. 
I pulled you out of the world. You might be in the world, but you're not of the world. Therefore, the world will hate you. He, he, he's reminding them this is who you are in the kingdom of God. So he says, we should remember who we are. And then he says, verse 13. So he says, remember who you are. And then he tells them, now this is what we should do. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not, do not be conformed to the passage of former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Because of who you are, this is now who you should be. Now everything then builds off this idea. So Peter says, because of who you are in Jesus, you have now been called to holy. Not for opposition, not for revolting, not for trying to overthrow a government or trying to get political in your spirituality, but because you're a believer of Jesus Christ, you have been called to holiness. And then he goes on to explain, now this is what the holiness looks like. So many times, the course of the day, those sweet boys, they'll say things like, well, dad, you know, the bare minimum is this, or what's the, what's the, what's the very least that I can do and still get by? You know, it's that idea that they just want to know what is the least amount of work, effort that I can put into it. And I try to remind them that that sons, you're never going to set the standard by just trying to meet the standard. And there's a lot of times in this world that you and I are just like going, what is the minimal, most minimal thing I can do to get by? Now you have some Christians today that are going, well, how do I just skate by by the skin of my teeth? And Peter says, no, you're thinking about it the wrong way. You're thinking about it the wrong way because we have been called to be holy. We have not been called just to survive. We have not been called just to persevere. We have not just been called to get by without getting killed. We have not just been called to get by and say, you know what, I believed and so now I'm there. He says we have been called to be holy. So then what does this do? What does this then do to us? Well, chapter 2 and verse 11, he gives us, so this is what it means then on the individual level. He writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Oh, there's so much right in there when he reminds us of who we are. We're sojourners. Somebody want to take a stab at what that idea of sojourner means? Being a soldier in action? Just traveling through. That's right. So... This isn't your home. This isn't your permanent residence. This is just, I am just a temporary person. Whether I'm just here for a few months or I'm just here for a few days. I am just a a drifter, if you will. A transit, if you will. I am just traveling through. So he reminds us that what we are in this life is we are all just sojourners. Because if you're in Jesus Christ, this is not your permanent final home. This is just a temporary stop, if you will. So he says, because you're sojourners, abstain from the passions of the flesh. We could spend, I think we could spend hours and hours just fully do what? I got a song on that. This place is not my home. I'm just passing through. That's right. Same thing with the That's right. That's right. And we could spend hours and days talking about what this passions of the flesh look like. 
one thing I do feel confident in is every single one of us in this room have passions of the flesh. Well, they, might, they might be different passions of the flesh. I, mine may be different than yours, but all of us have passions of the flesh. Things, whether it's selfishness or pride, or whether it is just wanting our own way, all of us struggle with these passions of the flesh, which way do we do what? Which wage wars against the soul. So he says, this individual calling, because you're called to be holy, then you need to understand, number one, this is not your final permanent home. And number two, there is a constant battle going on inside of you. And I'm not trying to say that you're a bad person. I'm not trying to say that you're not a nice person. Nice people go to hell. It's not a matter of being bad or being nice. It's a matter that we all realize that individually we are constantly fighting a battle. And it's a strong battle. And it's that battle that says, I want or I don't want. Who is going to be in charge? Either Jesus is going to be in charge or I'm going to be in charge. And it's that same little scene. I've got this little two-year-old right now. And he understands what the word no means. Which just changes that whole dynamic of parenting all together. Whenever I say no and he looks at me and I know that he understands what I meant by no. And then I get to watch his face process. And I get to watch him decide... I want to do this. Dad said no. What am I going to do? And I get to watch him go through the whole process. And and sometimes, sometimes he doesn't decide to do what dad says and we get to spend a little more quality time. Sometimes, sometimes he decides to do what dad says and things just move right along smoothly. But it's the same thing for his daddy. (coughs) I go to do something and God says no. And I turn around and look at God. And look back at this. And look at God. And look back at this. And I'm making a decision. That's what Peter's talking about. Peter says, one of the things when it comes to being holy is you've got to understand that this is not your permanent home. And every day you have a battle raging war within you. Which means that none of us in this room ever get to the point that we can just say, I've arrived, or I'm safe, or I don't have any more problems to face. Every single one of us has struggles. Every single one of us has challenges. So he says there's an individual calling. But then, chapter 3, he talks about the challenge, the calling within the home. Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without the word, or without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Then look down in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So he says there is not only a challenge that you face individually with the passions waging at war within your soul, but you're also facing challenges and struggles within the home. This is not a new concept of the role of men and women within the home. This is not a new concept of the role of men and women within marriage. This is not a new concept of the role of men and women within society. This is not a new struggle or a new challenge or a a new problem that is going on. It it is an age-old issue. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And remember in Genesis chapter 3, whenever Eve ate of the fruit and then she gave some to Adam and Adam ate, they sinned, they fell against God, or they fell away from God, sin entered into the world, God shows up in the garden, confronts Adam and Eve, 
Eve, and then he pronounces the judgment. And remember, to the serpent, he said, you're going to crawl on your belly. And then what does he say to Adam? He said, Adam, you're going to work your days, and you're going to toil, and by the sweat of your brow, you will then reap the fruit from the earth. So you're going to work. I had a boy the other day ask me, Daddy, why do we have to work? Because it's biblical. <laughs> because I'm not raising my grandkids. So we are going to work. Right? But then remember what he says to Eve. He says, all right, Eve, this is your curse that Adam will have dominion or he will have headship over you, but then your desire will be contrary to his. So he says right there in Genesis 3, there is going to be conflict between the husband and wife in the home. He's going to say, I'm in charge. And she's saying, no, you're not. He's going to say, I can do this. And she's going to say, I can do it better. And there's always going to be this friction and this conflict within the home. The big, the big words that you probably have heard before is egalitarianism and complementarianism. Egalitarianism and complementarianism. Now what these two words mean is there's two trains of thought. Egalitarianism says that men and women are both equal in value, dignity, and role. So there's no difference in the eyes of God between a man and a woman. Anything the man can do, will do, has the opportunity to do, woman has the same thing. They are both equal in dignity and role. That's egalitarianism. Complementarianism says that they are both equal in value and dignity, but they are different in role. Not that one is more valuable or has greater dignity than the other one does, but man and a woman, especially in the home, they have different roles within the home. Are you Not saying that the man is able to do what he wants with her, her permission. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Good try though, Scotty. No, the idea is, is that it's not that man is of greater value or lesser value or that woman is of greater dignity or lesser dignity. It's the fact that they have the same value, the same dignity in the eyes of God, but they have different roles. Who said this? Not Freud, not Carl Rogers, not Abraham Maslow, not Spence McConnell, not Billy Graham. God. God said there will be different roles. But the challenge is, the challenge is, is when it comes there of practicing that. Because you can go outside the world and you can see all these examples where they say, no, 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 no. There is not going to be any difference between man and woman in society. It's all going to be a living playing field. It is all the same thing. And yet when you come to scripture, you see that God says, no, there are two distinct roles within the home. And that's why he talks about in verse 1 of chapter 3. This is the, the opportunity of the woman to serve God. And to serve the home. And then in verse 7, this is the opportunity of the man to serve God and serve the home. Yes, ma'am. You have to have rules of order. You do. Otherwise, you have chaos. That is, and that's what we see in this world today is chaos. That is right. That is right. And Adrian, I heard Adrian Rogers the other day said, said this and it just stuck in my head. He said, anything that doesn't have a head is dead. And anything with more than one head is a monster. That's pretty good. That's one of those things. I wish I, I mean, I, I could have said Spence thought about this the other day, but that, not, that, would, not, that would not be honest. But, but it's the idea, but it's the idea that how can we demonstrate, how can we demonstrate the difference that God makes in us in the home by how we conduct ourselves in the home, by how we deal with ourselves in the home. 
Now this gets abused and this gets mistreated and the man comes and says, well, she's supposed to submit to me. She's supposed to do what I'm saying. And I'm like, listen, feller, no, she is supposed to follow your leadership as you're following the leadership of Christ. And when you get your leadership under Christ straight, she'll probably be a lot more willing to follow your leadership. But because you're too busy playing on video games and going out the buds, I wouldn't want to follow you either. And so there's all kinds of troubles, but we got to understand that there's a calling that he has placed in our lives when it comes to the home. There's an order. There's a direction. There's a, there's a guidance that is there. I am firmly, unashamedly, confidently a complementarian. Somebody that doesn't want to be a complementarian, that's fine. You can disagree with God. But I am going to agree with God and I'm going to be a complementarian. That doesn't mean that I am more valuable than Jaylene or I'm better than Jaylene. It means that we have different roles to play. It's a whole lot easier for me to snatch up one of those little punk boys and give them some quality time with dad. But then when they're hurting and they got a boo-boo, no sympathy. Mom, she's worried about hurting their behind, but yet when it comes time to a bruise or a cut or a boo-boo, she's right there with all the whole box of a medical kit she's got. She'll, she'll do whatever. We, we've got, we're wired differently. And what an opportunity is for us to show that to a watching world. Not because that's our choice, but because that's God's, that's God's direction for our life. So he talks about the individual, how we have this challenge. He talks about in the home, how we have this challenge. Especially living out these roles in the home in front of a world that's in chaos and lost or ever love of mind. And then he talks about from the body believers. Then what do we get to do there? Chapter 4, verse 10. He's going to talk about how we're interacting with one another. and he's, You can go back up to verse 7 and read all the way down through verse 11 if you wanted to for the second context. But I just want you to just focus in on verse 10. Because he's going to talk about this idea. This is what we're supposed to do with when the body of believers. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So not only do you have this challenge going on where your passions are at war with your soul, but then you also have challenges going on within the home as far as living this thing out um, with the sinful nature inside of you, but living out in obedience to God. But then also in verse 10, notice how he says, use it to serve one another. It means there's an expectation. It means there's an opportunity for you and I to come to church and say, how do we get to serve the others around us? So much dwarfed into this consumerism. Give me, give me, give me. I want to show up and what do I get? What do I get? What do I get? What do I get? Remember back, remember the, the Western Sizzling days? I remember probably, they didn't have Western Sizzling out there. Pagan country, did they? <laughs> they have them in Mexico. All right, so my, my grandma used to always call it the Sizzler. She always said, We're going to go to the Sizzler. And so I remember we'd go in there, and my grandma, bless her heart, I mean, she'd be sitting at the table and she'd grab all of the crackers out of the deal. She'd grab all the deals of the butter. She'd put them here. She'd grab the, the salt packets and the, and, and the peppers packets. And she'd put them here. And I said, Grandma, what are you doing? Oh, we've already paid for all this. I'm just going to get what I've already paid for. <laughs> no, no, no. She was just coming saying, what do I get? I want, 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 want. And there's people that come like that into the church. I'm here. Make me happy. Tickle.
tickle my ears, make me feel good, don't say anything that confronts my problems or my faults or my failures. Just come in and me, 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 I need to be fed, I need to be liked, I need to be having my butt behind powdered and padded, me, me, me. And, 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 and Peter flips it on his head. He says, what would it be like if we came to church and instead of you coming to church for what you get out of it, what about if you came to church for what you give other people? So on your way to church Sunday morning and you're thinking, what am I going to give to my church family today? Well, I don't have anything to give, Spence. I don't, I don't really have any talents and I really don't have any abilities and I'm just... I'm just really struggling right now. You know there's something that every single one of us can give that doesn't cost a single thing and that's just a smile. Just how are you? How's life? A kindness. A joy. Come in. Lighten up the room. And it's a way that we can serve one another. Now he goes on in verse 11 talking about these different gifts that we can use to serve one another. But he says there's a challenge. And it's the same challenge then, it's the same challenge now, where people get so fixated on themselves and the, their view becomes so narrow. All they do is think about them, my problems, my situation, my struggles, my, uh, uh, my burden to bear. And I'm not even thinking about anybody else. Can you just imagine what the church would look like when people were coming in more concerned about others than they were about themselves. Then you go on to chapter 5. And then he talks about not just the calling of the individual level. That was chapter 2. The calling in the home. That's chapter 3. The calling within the, our service to one another in the, in the confines of the church. And that's chapter 4. But then he also talks about the church as a corporate body in chapter 5. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the sheep shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Not only is there to be a God, not only does God have a design and a plan for the home and the marriage, but he also has a plan and design for the church. Who's the chief shepherd of the church? Christ. That's right. So all of us in this room are then following Christ. But then there's also under-shepherds, and that's where the pastors and the spiritual leadership come in, that they are serving as the under-shepherd. But in this analogy, the church is the sheep, the pastor is the under-shepherd, and Christ is the chief shepherd, and so we are all following after Christ. Does anybody know who Greg Judy is? Anybody familiar with that name? Okay, so... You got, your, you got your sheep, okay? Most of us, when we think about sheep, we think about woolly sheep. Produce the wool, you shear the wool, you produce the wool, got clothes, whatever the case may be. You also got a whole other side of the sheep world, and now they are called hair sheep. And they have hair similar to like a, a short hair dog, 
Okay? And so some people are raising these for the meat production, not just for the wool production. So Greg Judy is like this big shot in the hair sheep world. And he's done a lot of raising hair sheep. He puts out a lot of videos talking about hair sheep and how to raise hair sheep and how to manage hair sheep. The only reason I know this is because I've been thinking about getting some hair sheep and so I've been doing some research. In one of these videos, he was showing his fence and all he had was a single strand hot wire at 30 inches off the ground. And that was it. And he moves, the, he moves these sheep constantly. So there wasn't like a five-strand barbed wire behind it. Okay? So he had a single-strand hot wire at 30 inches. Well, I've always been told when it comes to goats, you take a bucket of water, you throw it through the fence, and wherever that water goes through the fence, that's where the goat are going to go through the fence. <laughs> is what I've always been told. And then I've been told with sheep, the sheep are a little bit more able to manage, but you're going to have to have good fencing. You're not going to have none of that saggy stuff, uh, none of that four-strand, three-strand. You're going to have to have some good fencing. And so when I'm watching this and I'm watching um, Greg Judy and he just has that one strand and I'm thinking to myself, how in the world does he keep them in? And he made a statement. He said the majority of my sheep, I have trained them. I started off with three strand or four strand hot wire and I've reduced it down to a single strand hot wire. And the majority of my sheep have been trained to stay in this single strand. He said, but occasionally I do have sheep that get out. He said, however, and I never thought about it like this before. He said, however, sheep are flocking animals. So even if you get one or two that gets out, they're going to come back if the majority of the flock is still inside the pen. Now maybe, I hope I, can, I hope I can make this clear to you. So what it got me thinking was, is how much of the time in the church... <coughs> We're a flock. And it's all a matter of who we're following. And, and, and yeah, you'll sometimes have people that err this way, and you'll sometimes have people that err that. But really, by and large, we're a flock, and we're just going to keep wandering around, meandering around, following the shepherd. That's why it's so important who we listen to and who we follow. Because every one of us in this room are listening and following someone. Every single one of us are following somebody. And who we follow depends on where we are going. And it will determine where we are going. And you think about throughout the days how how people have have splinted off and gone back around. But when you think about it, all of us, we just kind of all want to huddle up and stay together. And we just want to go along. We just want to get along. We're just like, well, you know what? If, if that's the trend or if that's the way it's going, I guess we'll just get along with it. I guess we'll just play follow leader. And so many times it's just a matter of... Going with the crowd. Going with the flow. Peter says there's a challenge. There's a challenge within the church of what shepherd they are following. Which has always been very convicting to me because there are too many people in this world today that call themselves a Christian. I think that Joyce Meyer or Paula Harris or Beth Moore, or others, are ordained by God and are being faithful in what they're saying. I'm not saying they don't say some true things. I'm just saying we need to be very careful about how we just follow aimlessly after voices and personalities. The same can be said for T.D. Jakes. Cleflo Dollar. 
Jesse Duplantis, a Joel Olstein. They might say good things and they may say things from time to time that are true. But we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful because the majority of them will divert from Scripture to teach their own narrative. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful about listening and following someone that claims to be a shepherd and is dressed like they're a shepherd but they're not concerned about the health of the sheep. So it matters who we're listening to. It matters what we pay attention to. And oh my stars, especially in today's time, you don't have to go very far to find. You've got two or three different radio stations and of course the internet has opened up all kinds of opportunities and there's from time to time people say, we've well, heard this guy, have you heard this guy, you heard this guy. No, I haven't. And, and I, there's too many people to keep up with. Did you know there's a, several people that I listen to regularly? Adrian Rogers, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, people that have shown their devotion and they have shown their faithfulness. Am I saying that they are sinless? Absolutely not. Am I saying that I agree 100% with what they have to say? I do not agree 100% all the time, but usually that's because I'm wrong, not because they're wrong. But there's an opportunity for us to listen and be led and be shepherded by faithful teachers of the Word of God. So he says there's a challenge. There's a challenge when it comes to the church corporately on which direction the sheep are headed. So we must be on guard. And we must be concerned. And it's an opportunity for us to remain vigilant in our lives, vigilant in the things that we're doing. So Peter comes in. I'm out of time. But Peter just lays this out and says, okay, this is what it looks like. Now notice, I haven't, we haven't read anything about how you respond to the persecution. Didn't say anything about how do you win in the court against the Roman government. Didn't say anything about, hey, how do you deal with the opposition you're facing? Because Peter says, that stuff is secondary. That stuff comes later. When you know who you are in Christ, and when you know what it means to be holy, and you know how you're supposed to live, do that prioritize that and all the rest of the stuff will sort itself out. I do think there's coming a day that we will be told in the church what we can say and what we can't say. There's coming a day that I think that for someone to stand up in this church and say that homosexuality is a sin will be persecuted. I think that day is coming. Do we sit around on a night like tonight and wring our hands and think, oh, 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 what are we going to do? What are we going to do when that comes? And how are we going to respond? Da, 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 da. No. Let's just be faithful. Let's be holy. Let's serve the Lord and serve one another. And let's give an example for the people of what it looks like to follow the chief shepherd. Let's do that. And when that other stuff comes, the Bible tells us, in those moments, He will give us the words to say and how we to respond. So instead of just sitting back, fretting, being pessimistic about what may happen, let's be optimistic about what is happening and what we can do today. Questions, thoughts, pushbacks?